0: Welcome to our podcast from The Ark Insider, the africa Focus podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, who leads the Pan-African risk consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, and publishes in-depth business intelligence briefings from the continent, joins me on the road from Ireland. We both live, breathe and work African Affairs, and our podcast seeks to stimulate ideas among those who, like us, share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Um, Ireland, I have to say. Ireland, not in Africa last time I checked. <laughs> what on earth are you doing there?
1: Well, I'm speaking to you from Trinity College, Dublin, and I suppose there is some relevance in it. Um, I'm really here... Uh, visiting my ancestral home and uh, and touring around and learning a bit about Irish history, and I as I speak to you, it is the Ireland is celebrating the centenary of the death of Michael Collins, who is Ireland's own liberation leader. So I suppose with Ireland's history is one of colonialism, and therefore has an awful lot in common uh, with Africa. But really, I'm here on holiday
0: although your attention for the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes or so is unreservedly focused on matters African. Absolutely. Comme d'habitude. Well, since our last podcast, I've been hiking the world's second biggest canyon, Tara, the Fish River Canyon in Namibia, with 16 kilograms of supplies strapped to my back. Um, it's been quite a feat, I have to say. I'm still feeling a bit achy as a result, but lovely to see that part of the world. And obviously, in addition to that, watching the election shenanigans of my former home, Kenya, but more on that a little bit later.
1: Yes, we'll be talking a little bit more about East Africa and the horn later on with our guest, who's a veteran commentator on that part. Of- of the world. Uh, But first, let's have a little look at some of the stories that have been in the news since our last podcast.
2: The American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has kicked off his three-nation trip of Africa with the first stop being in South Africa. The three-nation trip will also include stopovers in the Democratic Republic of Congo and also in Rwanda.
0: Now, Angola's former president,
2: Jose Eduardo dos Santos, who ruled Africa's second biggest oil producer for nearly
0: four decades, has died aged 79. Kenya's veteran opposition leader, Raila Odinga, has formally filed a petition challenging the election results in Kenya's Supreme Court. Odinga has rejected the outcome of the poll after he narrowly lost to the deputy president, William Ruto, by around 230,000 votes. Russian President Vladimir Putin says that he will allow inspectors to visit the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant. In a call with France's President Emmanuel Macron, the Russian leader said officials from the International Atomic Energy Agency will be allowed to assess the situation on the ground.
1: Well, as you've heard there, the story that many of us are still talking about is Kenya's election result, which on the face of it marks a transition from the old post-independence political elite, William Ruto, the apparent victor, assuming the courts don't overturn his win. While very much part of the political establishment is definitely not a member of the post-independence political dynasty, as his two rivals are, President Uhuru Kenyatta, who chose to back veteran politician Rilo Odinga for the top job, are both sons of the first president and the first deputy president of Kenya.
0: Yeah, interesting. A lot of people seeing this very much as a sort of class Driven uh, election. We'll be talking a little more about the Kenyan election with our guest in just a few minutes, but picking up on another political contest, if I may, Tara, Angola. As we record this, Angola preparing for two high profile events general elections on the 24th of August and the funeral of the late president. Indeed, as we record this, the body of former president. Jose Eduardo dos Santos has arrived in Angola from Spain, where he passed away earlier in July. There's been something of a family tussle to get his remains released, but now his funeral is expected to be held later this week. And it's happening just as Angola prepares to go to the polls. The president and leader of the MPLA, João Lourenço, has urged Angolas to vote for his party to honour the late Mr. dos Santos, who was its first leader since independence from Portugal in 1975.
1: Yes, and it looks as though that tactic will have an effect. Um, The governing MPLA is expected to win, but for the first time with a a reduced majority. A biting recession and the inability to really pull the large urban population out of poverty, or at least for generations, no attempt to pull the poorest out of poverty, Mm -hmm. uh, has really been at the back of the disenchantment of the ruling party, of Lorenzo's party. And even though Lorenzo has been leading a major programme of of economic reform and really substantial reforms, the first of these uh, types of liberalisation that you've seen since, uh, since the MPLA came into power, it hasn't been fast enough or deep enough. The rival party, UNITA, is expected to pick up a lot of votes, particularly amongst the youth and particularly in Luanda. But still, all the predictions are that uh, that the MPLA will ho- hold sway and maintain its hold on the rural areas.
0: Yeah. Angola matters, of course, Tara, because a number of key multinationals, the oil giant BP, France's Total and Italy's Eni, all have major interests in the country Angola, of course, Africa's second largest oil producer. And so if President Lorenzo wins a second term, it surely will be something of a vindication for his programme of economic reform, which which have been substantial.
1: Well, yes, as we said, the economic reforms are, are very significant and very deep, but slow and very late in the day. And you know there are an awful lot of uh, concerns about corruption and fraud, and the historic uh, issues of corruption in the in the country of very unequal society as a result, but also corruption and fraud surrounding these elections, mm. and and a possibility of post election violence. Uh, one of the issues is that the opposition party UNITA has voiced concern over is the extraordinary number of ghost voters. Yes, this is extraordinary. um, I mean, this is something that you and I have seen many, many times over. Having dead people on the voters' roll is really not... not, Nor is it uniquely an African phenomenon. Um, But UNITA claims that there are something like 2.5 million uh, dead voters on the electoral roll. And, And among them, and wait for it the Jonas Savimbi, the founder of UNITA and the counter-revolutionary leader of uh, of, the, of its military wing for many years.
0: You'd think you'd try to make it slightly less obvious if you were going to rely on uh, ghost voters, wouldn't you? <laughs> Selecting a, a leader, a past leader, is not really the way to go.
1: Yes, and you know, we now have uh, the lack of trust is also intensified by legislation would actually vote uh, force the vote counts to be taken centrally rather than at municipal and provincial level. So, actually, taking you know direct control of a vote count is always, as we have seen in Kenya, is always um, uh, particularly problematic.
0: And, Tara, away from the elections, Angola is experiencing something of a windfall with the rising global oil prices, I understand. Yes,
1: absolutely. And, you know, with oil prices shooting up,
0: it means
1: that Angola is immediately better able to manage its budget and particularly its debt, which actually was something like, um, I think it was 115% of GDP at the beginning of last year. Mm. So it it enables it to manage it and also it boosts
0: its growth. Nigeria. I know we always love Nigerian stories. Go for it. All
1: right. Anyway, when I talk about currency and exchange rates, Karen, I know that this sends you into a deep sleep. But actually, it's incredibly important because Nigeria's recently released debt figures show that the central bank has been breaking its own rules and appears to have been printing large quantities of money. And now, why is this important? I mean, it is important in that just at some point, probably also as elections approach, that the Naira will have to match its real value against the main trading currency, the US dollar. And what that means is a massive devaluation in the Naira, a big shock to business and a big shock to ordinary people. It will probably mean a huge spike in inflation and notably food inflation. Uh, And that, in Nigeria's case, pushes yet more people into poverty and all of this
0: probably in an election year in 2023. So problems ahead. Currency, exchange rates, inflations. You really make those figures (laughs) sing, Tara. Seriously. No, you're right. It does. It absolutely matters. And you remind me why I chose an economics degree back in the day, even if I try and resist talking about currency fluctuations. Anyway, moving on. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and my colleague, Tara O'Connor. Today's guest on our podcast is Rashid Abdi, veteran expert on the Horn of Africa and a former analyst with the International Crisis Group and now an independent consultant. Rashid, welcome to The Arc Insider.
2: Thank you very much, Karen. Happy to be here.
0: Nice to speak to you. You're talking to us from Nairobi. I hope to be there in the next week or so. Meanwhile, greetings from Johannesburg, where I'm speaking to you. My colleague Tara O'Connor is in Ireland. Yes, and hello, Rashid. Uh, greetings ha- hello,
2: from Dublin. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> hello greetings from uh, Nairobi. Uh, it has been one of our coldest uh, uh, winters in in years, so uh, it is now getting better, but uh, we are still uh, uh, feeling the the impact of the elections as well as the cold weather. So, double whammy.
0: It may be cold in Nairobi, but you're warmly welcome to the podcast, and. We've talked about Kenya already and obviously all eyes on the new president, as it would seem, William Ruto, who was previously vice president, plans afoot, as we record this, to swear him in in the coming days. But there is a court case, obviously, uh, that is outstanding. It's being challenged by the opposition. The fact that it looks like this is going to be sorted out in the courts rather than on the streets, that has to be a massive bonus.
2: Um, totally right. Um, Kenya's elections uh, have been prone to this kind of periodic uh, breakdown uh, and also contested outcomes are nothing new. Um, elections since 2000 have been dogged by these kind of allegations of, uh, uh, you know, um, rigging. Mm. So it isn't anything new. Uh, but the fact that this has now become chronic, it has become perennial, I think it's definitely deeply worrying. Uh, you can know Kenya as much as I do. It is a very vibrant uh, democracy. Uh, there is a, a huge a civic uh, you know pride and ambition in Kenya's uh, um you know liberal democratic mm. trajectory. Uh this is a country with strong institutions um and not you know completely different from from other states in in the region. Uh that said I think uh, the fact that elections are always contested uh, doesn't augur well for Kenya's, uh, I think, democratic path. Uh, it, is, uh, it is not just a question of technical or uh, you know, logistical problems. It is, I think, stems from a problematic uh, uh, you know, side to the Kenyan political culture, which is um, the political elite have disinvested completely from Elections yeah Kenya is what I would call now an elite compact democracy in other words, there is an inbuilt um, um, an inbuilt mechanism that makes it almost break down and the political elite all of them thrive in this kind of weak uh, you know electoral machinery
0: as we speak to you now, rashid what's the mood like on the street is there a sense that uh, you know, things are held in abeyance that the kind of violent scenes that we've seen in the past could still come with the uh, announcement of, of, of a judgment in the Supreme Court? Or are people fatigued by the violence and they just want to get back to business?
2: I'm glad you, you raised that question, Karen, because one of the things that struck me uh, most about uh, the current, I think, uh, contested outcome is the fact that there has been a total absence of violence. Mm. There has been tension, yes. There have been days in which nobody knew what was happening. But uh, there is a general mood among, I think, the population that, um, you know, the elite will sort this out. Uh, We better go back to business. And remember, this is a post-COVID world where everybody's desperate to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't, I think, a real appetite for some kind of a street action. This morning, uh, the uh a coalition coalition uh, basically filed a suit. This is Odingus, uh, the Supreme side, yeah. Council. Odinga's Yes, side, exactly. Yeah. Yes, and uh, they have two weeks roughly, to produce a verdict. Uh, I've seen the panel. It's a heavyweight panel of judges. So you know the the outcome is not going to be, I think, uh, it's going to be credible in many ways. Uh, so we are awaiting uh, I think, uh, that process. So you can be sure that in the next two weeks, Kenya will be calm. There, there, are many, there are many scenarios. One is the court case, basically, uh, the Supreme Court saying, uh, we do not have a clear winner and we need a runoff. Mm. Expensive. That is the most plausible. And that could yeah, be massively
0: most... expensive as well if that happens. It's not all down to economics, yes. but at a time when Kenya is exactly. in crisis economically, all the yeah. world is, yeah.
2: Now, the, what I hear is that uh, there is a strong incentive, uh, both from the state uh, and other other institutions not to have a rerun, and that I think will also weigh on the minds of the judges. Mm. Um, I think the probably best best scenario forward would be to do a proper recount because this this uh, these elections uh, was not just electronic; they also had copies mm. uh, of what you know. And so it's going to it's going to be painful, but I think uh, sifting through the millions of vote cast one by one is ultimately how to get this right, who uh, is the winner. And if, if it takes that, it's going to be weeks uh, and probably over a month before we get the outcome. Uh, and ultimately, I think it will produce uh, a clear winner, even if, you know, this is 50 plus one vote. Okay. So it isn't 50 plus 100 votes or something. It is 50 plus one. And so, the, you know, it just... It just means that uh, we will just have to wait and then uh, we will have a clear uh, outcome. There are many variables, uh, unknown variables. Uh, one, of course, is the um, end game and the calculations of the current incumbent, uh, President Uru Kenyatta. Uh, remember Kenyatta never liked Ruto, supported Raila. Uh, and so whether we will have a smooth transition and a hand- handover uh, is uncertain.
1: Rashid, assuming that um, assuming that the votes are are properly counted again, and the current result, which is that uh, that William Ruto um, is in fact elected, I mean, what does that say about Kenya? I mean, we're the strongman politics is still very much the characteristics of so many of the countries that we look at, and Kenyatta, yes, tried to position himself as a democrat. Ryla Dinger as the constitutionalist. And what about Ruto? He wasn't directly anointed by Daniel Arap Moy, but does this, if he, should he be found to be the winner, is it uh, likely that we're going to return to a more ruthless type of politics? Um,
2: I think the the best way to, to answer that question will be also to take a, a little bit of a step back and look at, uh, you know, the evolution of his politics uh, from a very, um, you know, when he was a young man uh, in the university and was involved in the uh, youth uh, for Kano movement. um, He was in some ways uh, mentored and groomed by Moi, Mm -hmm. um, saw how politics uh, was played. Uh, But this is a a man who is an outsider from politics. And uh, I think uh, to his credit uh, from early on, he adopted, um, um, you know, and I think that stems also from astuteness. You know, he he understood what are the concerns of the young people, and adopted the language of class warfare. And you know, and and he had he had the right pedigree. He said, you know, I I grew up not with a silver spoon in my mouth. Uh, you know, I, I I had no family. I basically came from nowhere. I built myself through my bootstraps. You know, I was a chicken seller. Um, he went and told the young people. So when when that kind of language uh, is, is deployed in an election, uh, in the midst of COVID, it is extremely potent. And we saw how millions of young people basically gravitated to that. To that. And when he stood up and said, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm against dynastic politics, you know, this was a man who had no whiff of hypocrisy around him. But that said, William Ruto also has another side to him which uh, I think goes back to the ICC and the whole uh, way in which um, the, the the post-election violence in 2007 slash 2008 were 100.
0: ICC as an international the, criminal court?
2: Yeah, the international criminal court. Now, uh, there has been, uh, it it has been a long battle and uh, there has been a lot of mysterious disappearances of witnesses, Uh and a lot of market stuff uh, really regarding the ICJ case. Um, and that has had a huge impact on the international credibility of RUTU. Uh, the ICJ, uh, you know, up to today... Well, sorry, just tell us what the ICJ that,
0: uh, is. Sorry, Rashi, just tell us what the ICJ
2: is. The International Court of Justice, yeah. which is based in The Hague, basically says, you know, and he's an indictee and uh, that, that label has not been removed from him. Mm-hmm. Many of European governments will find it extremely difficult uh, to deal with Ruto as president, because they have very strong um, you know, legislations in their government um, you know, putting limits to how much uh, their governments can, can engage. Mm-hmm. We saw that in 2018, 2013 when Ruto was deputy and Kenyatta was the president. There was a policy of very minimal cooperation uh, with 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 the with the West, especially the Europeans. Times have changed. Uh, Kenya is probably the only country now in the Horn which is um, stable. Yeah. Uh, Ethiopia, which was an anchor state, is in serious, uh, you know, uh, conflict and probably going back to conflict. Uh, there is, I think, a recognition that Kenya, despite its clumsy democracy, its ineffectual. Uh, electro machinery, it's dubious, uh, you know, individuals in power would still be the best bet to keep the region stable. And I think for that reason, you will see uh, a sort of soft backpedaling on the part of the European powers.
1: We've also got, you know, a changed geo- geopolitical consideration with Russia's yeah. invasion of Ukraine. And now, you know, I think the last thing that the West, to your point, Rashid, the last thing the West would want would be to push, um, you know, to, um, you know, to push Kenya into the arms of Russia and China. Absolutely. Excellent
2: point. I think we are in a we are in a geopolitical climate in which we wouldn't see a lot of pressure really on uh, on Ruto. Now, um, how would Ruto himself, I think, is definitely an evolving politician. Uh, he is smart, he is uh, pragmatic, um, and I think he understands also uh, Kenya's place within the current geopolitical climate. I don't think in his first term, he he would go out openly to antagonize the West. My instinct, my sense is that he will be, he will uh, pro- probably be more amenable to some kind of negotiations. Uh, he may he may actually reach out to Odinga and bring some of his people on board. Um, I don't think you will see a radical shift in Kenya's foreign policy uh, under RUTO. You will definitely see what you would see uh, much of is definitely rhetoric. There will be a lot of uh, you know uh, anti western rhetoric but also a posturing uh, saying that you know Kenya will shift um, towards the east and uh, will will cultivate uh, you know powers from wherever they are, you will see that kind of rhetoric and language. But I seriously doubt um, you will see a real investment uh, in that rhetoric. And this, and the reason why is because uh, Kenya has remained consistently from independence uh, a pro-Western state. So you, you have that strong uh, linkages between elites in the West and also elites in, uh, in Kenya. But also one point uh, before I finish, uh, you also have institution to institution relationships. Take for example the Kenyan military. The Kenyan military has partnership with both the British government, British military, but also the US military. They get equipment, they get training, they get funding. Uh, you know, so there is a very cosy, uh, mutually beneficial relationship, which will go out of the window if there is a radical shift uh, in foreign policy.
0: A hundred percent, I agree with you. And as you write, you know, Ruto is a very smart man and he knows how to play sort of a a longer a longer game. I mean just to toss a question in here, I mean you, you talk about that relationship with the West being so strong and I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, around Africa and and in Western democracies there's lots of talk about meddling in other people's elections and and Russian meddling, for example, in politics in Kenya. I mean yeah. how much and particularly on social media networks, how much do you think that resonates? Because actually, you know, there isn't necessarily the same kind of relationship that you have in Kenya, to Russia, as you have, say, in South Africa with Russia. I mean, do you think that there is the possibility of, of meddling, of external meddling in Kenya's elections? Because actually Kenyans are very, very good at doing the spin doctoring themselves, if you like, without having to yes. rely on external actors. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that.
2: Uh, no, that's a good question, Karen. And I think it's probably also uh, links back to the, la- the last elections and uh, the dubious role which uh, uh, Cambridge Analytica yes, played. Yes, exactly. Uh, which, by the way, election.
0: is not a Russian company. So, you know, that's quite interesting, isn't it? not a Russian it? company, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes.
2: Uh, I think um, Kenya probably has learned its lessons since that time. So we, we haven't seen, I think, uh, engagement of, um, you know, uh, PR and other companies from the West or from any other part. Yeah. Another has been... Um, I think uh, a deliberate uh, um, policy of actually having a backup system of analog, of using, uh, you know, basically hard copies, uh, not to go fully electronic because that will create, that will, will in a country which has very vulnerable, very weak, uh, I think, IT infrastructure Mm -hmm. still, despite the competence, you know, this country is called, uh, uh, you know, the Silicon Savannah. It has very smart young people. Uh, but i think still we we elections can be highly vulnerable if they are 100% electronic and there's no backup system and that explains why uh, this time there is actually uh, a clear uh, backup system which uh, to confirm um, the electronic uh, input uh, so that was one way in which kenya inoculated itself i think from from the kind of uh, very heavy intrusion but that said, I think uh, this is uh, this is definitely a question that will, will be will weigh on the minds of people who are going to recraft uh, Kenya's electoral system on how to firewall and uh, strengthen the 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 um, electoral system, but also to make it also um, uh, you know more more accessible as well you know one of the one of the salient features of of this election is the fact that the the public was able to actually download um, you know um, in real time they were able to download election results mm. you know and that's i think
1: quite quite uh, impressive that's very impressive whoever comes into power it's a little bit of a poison chalice at the moment because you know not only is there a, it has you know will whoever comes into office will have to deal with a massive debt, uh, the challenging international community that we've just talked about, but also the worst drought in decades, which to which Kenya is particularly vulnerable. I think the UN's latest statistics are that something like 22 million people across the region in Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia, are at risk um, of starvation. What would be your assessment of the situation?
2: Tara, you you mentioned a good point, which is uh, um, from what I hear, and I'm not an expert in this field, but what I hear uh, my colleagues say is that this is probably the worst uh, drought uh, in 40 years. Uh, And uh, countries like Somalia, you are beginning to see, over a million people are now displaced. Um, You have entire uh, regions completely abandoned. Now, Somalia is unique because it's not just suffering from perennial drought. It is also, I think, at the epicenter of probably uh, the worst single case of climate change, uh, you know, environmental degradation uh, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, now, in, in countries which are resource poor, like Somalia, uh, where you don't have water, where you don't have pasture land, um, this kind of pressure also produces conflict. And we are beginning to see, I think, how conflict and climate change are all producing, I think, the perfect storm of of crisis. Now, if you add on top of that uh, contested elections, you know, that becomes problematic. So I think, unfortunately, you know, I want to to sound optimistic, but, you know, um, we have gotten away with so many contested uh, outcomes uh, because, I think, uh, of a variety of reasons. But in the future, I think it will become extremely difficult uh, for countries to really, um, you know, just... uh, muddle through uh, an electoral outcome. It could easily, uh, uh, you know, uh, trigger uh, violence.
0: It's a really good point. If ever you wanted to see evidence of climate change, this is the right part of the world to see it. You are an expert on the Horn of Africa, uh, Rashid, and we've reported extensively on this podcast on Ethiopia's civil war and the central government's clashes with the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the involvement of Eritrea and the alleged human rights abuses which have been perpetrated on a, on a massive scale, we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that now because it is a complicated story. But um, Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy has been embarking on widespread economic reforms, but that has included a crackdown on corruption, which has seen some of the civil servants, Tigrayan civil servants within the government, particularly singled out. What's your assessment of that? Has he been using economics as a oh, cover for ethnic purges? Given his own mixed heritage, yeah. how would you how would you assess that?
2: Um, let me start first of all by a small anecdote that probably encapsulates uh, the crisis we are dealing with in Ethiopia. Um, everyone knows Ethiopian Airlines is 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 a great brand, uh, one of the most efficient and best run African airlines. Uh, there there was a report uh, this week about uh, an incident in which uh, two overworked pilots basically. Uh, decided to take a nap and uh, switch on the autopilot. And uh, this, this uh, caused uh, consternation everywhere. Of course, I hear pilots have done these kind of things uh, before. Yeah. Uh, the planes are getting better and getting more automated. So probably it isn't uh, the big crisis people make it to be. But in some ways, you know, this incident uh, serves as a metaphor. <laughs> For, yes. for Ethiopia, yes. <laughs> where you have the leadership basically um, sleeping on the job and, uh, and an entire country basically going around in circles. So I think in many ways uh, the, the dilemma of, uh, of um, Ethiopian airlines is not very dissimilar to the dilemma we face in Ethiopia. Uh, this is a country that was once, uh, you know, well run, uh, you know, had uh, very strong institutions, um, you know, had very energetic development agenda. But all of a sudden, I think we, we are at a period where uh, the country has latched from one crisis to another, mm. uh, is unable to end conflict, is unable to go back to war again and finish it. So we are in a limbo. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of things are being done. Now, if I was a foreign investor and looking at Ethiopia, uh, this is not a place I'll be ready to jump in and put my money in. Mm. Uh, this is a country in serious trouble, in serious crisis. And uh, unless there is a significant, I think, shift, strategic shift on the part of uh, Abiy to really, uh, I think, work hard for peace, um, unfortunately, this country will only uh, get worse.
0: It was one of the African countries that didn't condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine on that famous 2nd of March vote back in the UN Security Council. It's quite interesting to see Ethiopia's position in international affairs. It obviously has strong historic and cultural ties with Russia, but is there more to Ethiopia's reluctance to call out Russia than pure historic ties? Uh,
2: you are right, Karen, in saying that uh, there is a deep historical connection between Russia and Ethiopia. Uh, this was forged for many, many centuries back. Uh, these, are, these were also imperial systems, remember. Mm. Tsarist Russia, and... Um, and uh, you know, imperial Ethiopia mimic each other. Yeah. They are also very powerful orthodox nations, so that you, you can see the historical resonance between these two, power, uh, between these two powerful countries. And the, also, uh, during the years of, of turmoil, revolution, and coups, Russia has been on Ethiopia's side, mm-hmm. always. Uh, and that also resonates uh, with, the, with, the, with the Ethiopian people. Uh, So that explains why, why Ethiopia, uh, Russia is today a much more diminished power. Uh, Its ambition uh, is probably to win the Ukraine war, but also, uh, you know, not to lose other geopolitical states. So Lavrov uh, toured Africa, um, picked those countries where he thinks, um, you know, there are, you know, it makes good headlines if you you stand there. Uh, And I think Ethiopia was a classic example of one country with strong anti-Western sort of uh, tenor to its politics standing up and saying we are here we have uh, proud Ethiopia uh, backing us uh, only the anti only Imperial lackeys like Kenya and other countries will stand by your side you know so th- this is a very powerful stuff it's very important uh, in Africa this language uh, you know which Ethiopia deploys um, remember uh, uh, Ethiopia is also the home of the African Union uh, pan-africanism grew up from this kind of uh, you know fertile, Anti-Western, anti-colonial struggles. So these are all, uh, I think, posturing on the part of the Russians. Uh, but it, it has potential, really, to 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 mess things up. Because uh, uh, one of the, I think, one of the good things is that the Ethiopians have been clever in playing the Russian card. But they haven't allowed the Russian mercenaries, especially the Wagner Group, into into Ethiopia. Not
0: yet. Not yet. <laughs> Which
2: I think is significant. I hear Wagner tried many times to join the battle against the Tigrayans to, you know, to be managing it. But uh, Ethiopia relied mostly on freelancers and especially those who are getting money from the Emiratis. So um, Abiy has been careful, I think, in not antagonizing the West. Uh, he, he feels that uh, if he goes all out and embraces Russia, he loses. Uh, Russia wouldn't give him the, the, the credit he needs. Russia doesn't have any leverage on the international monetary system; uh, it is under sanctions. So there, there is very little incentive for for Ethiopia to now pro, to now you know court or embrace Russia, but Russia is a potent card for Abiy against uh, his struggle with the West, and he will play that.
1: Rashid, the very uh,
0: summation. Uh, just putting it in a perfect uh, summary. You've really painted a very, very clear picture. And it's, you know, it's a part of the world that for many of our listeners, I know there's so much change that it's really nice to get it pinned down with an expert. So thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you very much, Karen. And thank you, Tara. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Arc publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can sign up for these at info at africariskconsulting.com. We also offer a suite of other services designed to communicate the issues that matter to Africa globally. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.